Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Last week, we welcomed Ronan Nia to the podcast for part one of a deep dive into the world of venture capital. On this second and final part of the conversation, Ronan, a general partner at Viola Ventures, picks up the discussion by explaining how profit and loss statements are looked at in SAAS model companies. And later in the episode, he details the way the VC world was upended due to COVID-19 and how maybe that's not such a bad thing. Ronan also explains which markets he thinks are ready to be disrupted, but why traditional startups might be the ones doing the disrupting. Enjoy part two. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. We spoke about profit. And again, if going back to university studies and, and traditional P&Ls, you know, it was revenue and then the costs. And then you have uh, the bottom line while in uh, software as a service companies, we usually do not expect to see the same profit. And, and suddenly you see maybe a loss and still everybody is smiling. So can, can you explain to me the phenomena why people that are experts in financial will still smile if a company uh, is growing rapidly and, 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 lo- and loses money in a SaaS model? Yes. So, so first of all, I think that the, the concept that there is no profit is, is, a wrong profit, is, is a wrong concept. There is profit. But we think that in SaaS model in general, the profit should be measured on a unique level and not on a company level. And I will try to explain why. Okay. In kind of traditional sales, one of the things we know from accounting is that we would like to have the kind of the expenses uh, against the revenue at the same time frame, right? And it was basically very easy to do so. So if you sell me a piece of software and paying your salespeople is going to, it's your $100 to do the marketing and sales, which is associated with selling me, and I'm buying a $200 worth of software license, then it's really easy to do the math, right? I pay 200, uh, it costs you 100, then you have a profit of 100, and then you know you just multiply it by the number of licenses you sold, and it's uh, gathering up easily to the company level. But what if, as, as we said, the move to the cloud or to the software as a service, I'm paying you every month, I'm paying is going to be much lower than 200. Otherwise, no one will buy it. It doesn't, doesn't capture the value that you are selling me, right? It still costs you $100 to sell it to me. But now, instead of giving you 
$200, I'm giving you $20 in January, and $20 in February, $20 in March, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If I'm a loyal customer and I will continue to pay this because I'm happy with the service, then actually the lifetime value of myself as a customer could be even greater than $200 in the previous model, right? But at any point in time, when I try to do this, I actually have, you have to recognize the expense because it's actually cost you $100 to sell it to me. But after three months in your quarterly report, you only got three times $20 that I paid you. So basically, you can recognize only $60 of the revenue and $100 of expense. So suddenly you have a loss of $40. The quarter after that, that specific customer, you don't have the, sale, the, the cost of sale because you already sold it. You just get a pure profit. You get, again, $60, uh, $60 from that. And actually, that customer is profitable after two quarters because after two quarters, it's already paid you $120 for the 100 that you said. So, but, and here is a big but, but in Q2, it's not that you stopped selling. You, sell, you sold to another customer, right? So you did have another $100 of expenses, not for customer number one, but for customer number two, right? So again, you are occurring those losses, right? And even if you are successful, then suddenly you're saying, why sell only one to one customer? In Q3, you're already selling to two customers. So your expenses go to $200 while you keep collecting those monthly payments. Now, on a lifetime value of that customer, that customer can be very, very, very profitable, right? But at a certain point of time, when you want to grow, you are actually putting your expenses ahead of your revenue, and that comes out as a loss, as a loss in the financial statement. So this is why we are saying, as long as, obviously not every, not every loss is good. I mean, if you pay the $100 to acquire a customer and that entire lifetime value of the customer is $80, then obviously it's a bad, uh, it's a bad uh, customer or yeah. a bad sale or a bad company. So not every loss is good. But certain losses are embedded into the model in which you basically recognize your expenses much ahead than you recognize your revenue. And that is creating a temporary loss. The problem is in hyper-growth companies, that temporary thing could last for years, right? And therefore, the right way, and this is part of what we are doing as a VC, and more and more, even, you know, investment bankers, et cetera, and you, and you refer to, and we talked about it, you and I, in the past, but many companies are going public when they are actually losing money. The important thing is really to analyze the unit economics. So is the single customer profitable? And if the single customer is profitable, and the loss on a company level is happening because I'm trying to sell more and more customer, then this does make sense and everybody's smiling. I hope I was clear enough because it's not that easy concept to understand. Yeah, I think it was uh, crystal clear. And with your permission, I'd like to go into, going back to an extent to, uh, to a previous uh, discussion of ours. And you've mentioned the fact uh, that when you raise money or when people come to raise money and, and you are involved, one of the issues is the individuals and, and the, uh, the feeling and understanding who they are and at the first glance, not necessarily looking into the, just the technology. And I'm asking myself in, in today's world in which it's very hard to meet face-to-face and it's very hard uh, to feel, uh, literally spend the time with the people 
um, is it still um, or how, how do you cope and how do you uh, leap over this uh, experience while you maybe can't meet the people? First of all, uh, it's a great question because I think that, again, people will tell you, I will tell you, and people around the industry will tell you, you know, after the first shock of March and April, uh, when everyone are kind of, you know, sitting back and holding what has happened, basically in the past four months, so we made investments and uh, we raised a lot of money to our portfolio companies and the pace of business being done over Zoom, you know, how it happened. Now, honestly, I can tell you, it's too early to tell whether we know how to do it or not. Maybe in two years, we will talk and I will tell you, listen, all the investments that we made during COVID were all bad investments because we missed that case, right? So I, I honestly don't know whether we got it right or not. But at the end of the day, I do think that we are uh, adapting. And I think in several ways. First of all, I agree with you that there is nothing like face-to-face. So maybe now we need to spend a little more time, right? Maybe before that it was, uh, you know, we had a first meeting. I was really impressed by you, et cetera, and immediately decided that I would like to go into a deeper due diligence in which we will get to know each other better, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe now over Zoom, you know, it will take two or three calls, right? It was a nice first call, uh, but let's have another call uh, and talk about other things, talk about life, talk about family, talk about other things before we dive into that, right? So, so I think that in terms of, uh, so it seems like the process could be a little bit less efficient, but actually it isn't. Why it isn't? Because what we found, and I think that, and, and I'm sure that you are experienced this, experiencing this in analytics as well, people are at home, they are not traveling, they are not standing in uh, lines, right? So it could be that in pre-COVID days, we would have the first meeting, and then the second meeting will happen only two weeks from now, because we are both very busy, and you are traveling next week, and I'm traveling the week after, et cetera, et cetera. Now, actually, having two calls, it's easy to do it. You can have a call tomorrow. And if we both like each other and want to continue the diligence process, we'll have another call tomorrow yeah. and not in two weeks. So actually, I think that there are two kind of contradicting things over here. On the one hand, we need more face time to get to know each other. On the other hand, it's actually getting easier uh, to do those processes faster. Right? This is one element. The other element, and it's definitely true to Israel, which is a very local thing, and We've done this before, but I think that we are doing this more now, is I, just, I don't just rely on my own impression or, or the team that I'm working impression, but I'm doing more reference. If your personality is, important, is a very important factor with the fact that, you know, uh, in the factor of, of investment that we have, if I feel because of the technology and the video conferencing that we cannot do, and maybe we will do, ask you for more references, do some more diligence about with people who know you and try to get, you know, additional inputs to your personality and your skills, not just from our own conversation, but from third party that can help us do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot, a lot. And as you said, we, we will know only in a few years, but uh, at least it makes uh, perfect sense uh, as we go along. Now, I would like to pick your brain on a different, uh, kind of a different angle. Looking forward, do you still see the same areas we've mentioned, you know, in general, IT and, and software and stuff, but do you see the same areas as we move forward as areas of interest or do you start to see 
different areas or new domains that people are now looking into in terms of entrepreneurships? The short answer is I think that it's going to be different. In what way? At what pace and at what way and to which areas, I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, debatable and you'll hear different opinions. But I think that in general, one of the things that we are seeing today is that you know, when you go over the past kind of 50 years, which kind of have the IT revolution, right? Actually, it was uh, a world that really started with startups. I mean, startups uh, were beginning and they became giants. This is how, right? Take a look at that. We spoke about digital uh, market leaders in the uh, mainframe and, uh, and, and mini computers world. Then, you know, IBM pivoted world uh, towards uh, PCs and Apple came along as a small startup that came to build domain. And then we had the, uh, uh, the mobile revolution, right? That turns out companies like, uh, like Nokia or, or like others to be real giants. And then we had the cloud revolution and then turned companies like Amazon, AWS to become uh, real leaders. And, and, you know, with people like Google, et cetera, all of those companies started as startups, right? And within 10 or 20 years of having this, they actually, uh, and obviously Facebook and, and there is, so, so the concept of the, the technology leaders that we are seeing today is leader, almost all of them have started the startups. I think that what we are seeing today is that we are definitely facing revolutions that we will all agree that these are real revolutions, you know, how long it will take, but, you know, machine learning and AI and IoT and uh, robotics and all kinds of those technological revolutions that are about to happen. And you may ask, where is the, new, where is the Apple of AI? Where is the Amazon of AI? Where is the Google of AI? Where are the startups that are actually going to disrupt the world and take over? And the answer now is very different answer than previous revolutions. The AWS of AI is AWS. And since the nature of this is of all this revolution is having a lot of money because you need a lot of compute power and having a lot of data, then actually what used to be uh, well, we said, you know, startups, their biggest uh, advantage is that they're quick to change and quick to make the adjustments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, what, what you need in order to succeed in the new revolution is you need to have a lot of resources, a lot of data, a lot of people to do this, et cetera. I'm not sure that startups are. So I think that in a way, talk, uh, looking at it from, from a macro standpoint, this is a very interesting point in time in which we ask ourselves as VCs because our life depends on, on startups. This is what we do. We fund startups. Where, what is the role of startups versus the big technology players? And have this role has changed, right? And I think this is a major question that, 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 that people have been asking. And I think, so the obvious question is, so is there a room for startup? And our answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. But the question is where? And I think that if most technological infrastructure in the past were driven on the infrastructure side, right? So new storage system, new networking systems, new uh, compute and uh, chips, right? And everybody's waiting for Intel's next generation chip in order to, to see uh, increasing compute power, et cetera, et cetera. And on top of that infrastructure, you had uh, you know, 
management layers and software layers and operating systems and hypervisors and all of this. Basically, that entire stack is now owned by the cloud provider, which we believe leaves, uh, leaves outside certain, uh, takes a lot of what startups used to do. Startups used, used to do a lot of infrastructure software. So on the one hand, it's very hard to compete with that. On the other hand, and this is where the big opportunity is, I think that what has happened is when we, and we talked earlier about as an example, is enterprise software used to be what we call very horizontal. So regardless whether it's Oracle or Salesforce, it's still, it's one CRM for all, right? Uh, I mean, whether you're a technology company or a healthcare provider or telco, everybody's using Salesforce or everybody's using Oracle, right? Uh, and therefore, what is that? It, it, it did provide one technology infrastructure, but the amount of customization needed to go through in order for that to meet their processes uh, and make the, those tools available for their people and really get the benefit out of it, there was a lot of customization that had to go on top of this. I think that what we are seeing now, since most of that IT infrastructure is solved because we can get it for, you know, a really good uh, price and flexibility from the cloud providers, now we can direct most of our resources in actually provide uh, end solutions and what we call vertical end solutions. And what do we mean by vertical end solution? Is taking industry one by one and trying to solve a specific problem of that specific industry, right? And I'll give you, and actually the best example, although it's a very strange example, but a very good example for this, Amdocs, right? Which did this already 20 years ago. And what did Amdocs do basically? They said, okay, what is OSS and BSS? It is a dedicated CRM and dedicated billing system that I tailored to solve the problems of telco providers, right? So we are not just taking a generic thing, but we acknowledge the fact that telco providers are a certain vertical, they have their own needs, they have their own, they need their own technological capability. And instead for them to try to take an Oracle, a generic Oracle and customize it to their need, we are going to come with a solution which is tailored specifically to solve that, uh, uh, that need, right? 10 years ago, we didn't have an automotive software industry. Now I think it's the other way around. People treat the next generation of, of cars to be basically software devices which are running on a certain piece of hardware, right? So this entire concept, now I need to solve the specific problems of automotive in terms of connectivity, in terms of safety, in terms of, of the functionality which is needed. And it's much easier to develop those tailored vertical solutions rather than adapt a generic solution to those. So I, I, we really think that the next 10 or 20 years are going to be by going vertical, 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 and gaining significant amount of productivity. So I have a, a many follow-up questions, but one big one, uh, which is something that I'm debating myself for a long time. Maybe you have uh, insights to share. Why is it that uh, the, the giants that is growing everywhere, such as you mentioned, uh, Tesla or Facebook or Google, well, relatively beside Amdocs, we don't have giants uh, in Israel. Why is it that w the, the local industry is always being eventually acquired and, and we don't have this uh, mega player that uh, dominates the market? First of all, I am inviting myself to a, another 
podcast 10 years from now and remind you this question. Okay. I actually think that we are indefinitely in the process of changing. And I think that, uh, um, and, I will try to, uh, and I will try to explain. Um, I think when you talk specifically about Israel, in historical retrospect, cloud, the migration to cloud has been the best thing that has happened to Israel ever. To an extent, if we could migrate, everything to the cloud would be better, no? In general, yes. But I think that what has happened is that we always had great technology over in Israel, right? Uh, and we knew how to build great product and, get, and great systems. But the nature of having those long sales cycles of software licensing, of system sales, of a lot of adaptation and professional services that had to come about, about it, I think that, first of all, Israel was far away from the market, which automatically creates issues like, uh, you know, I know how to develop a product, but selling it to a U.S. corporate is a completely different story. Do I have the skills? Do I have the knowledge to do this, etc.? So that move from having a great product into having a large set of customers that can, I, can scale to tens and hundreds of millions of dollars was a really big hurdle uh, to put. And only few companies, Converse and Nice and Variant and some of the other you know, giants that did, that did manage to do this, those Israeli companies that managed to do this did become uh, market leaders in their respective uh, vertical. It was just very hard to do and very few companies could acknowledge that. And the risk was so high that even talking as an investor, at a certain point of time, I need, we needed to decide whether we get an, an offer to acquire the company for 100 to $200 million. You know, we, it does have the potential to become bigger, but does it worth the risk of really opening a sales office in the U.S., investing all this money, etc.? What has happened with the cloud is that the cloud, because of the internet nature of the cloud, not just changed the technology, not just changed the business model, but also got the markets much closer to us, right? And therefore, suddenly, at least in some cases, you can see that Israeli companies are actually, some of the most successful Israeli companies are those that learned how to change their sales and marketing from field sales to this modern online thing. And I don't think that it's a, Obviously, what I'm going to say now, it's, uh, it's not for all companies, but I think that it is not strange that we are seeing uh, companies like Wix, like Fiverr, Lemonade, like JFrog, right, which are the four latest Israeli IPOs that have happened. What is common to all of them, all of them are basically uh, doing a lot of their sales and marketing over the web without a major internet, without a major field sales force with being able for, for most of them even to being headquartered in Israel. So first of all, we have you know, a record number of, of unicorn. I must tell you that knowing each, each and every one of them, um, in most cases in Israel, those valuations are justified. So there is a hype in the world in technology, of course. But in Israel, compared to the US, for instance, most of the Israeli unicorns are actually selling for tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, right? There are real businesses that are growing fast, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a record number of more than 30 unicorns today in Israel. And the interesting story is more than half of them are actually headquartered in Israel. We used to, you know, a sales process was, you know, taking customer over to dinner and doing the relationship and all the cultural things that go with it. Now sales and marketing, a large part of this is science. What is science is data, is optimizing campaigns, et cetera. 
And once in science, we are very good at it, right? So I think that the online marketing, that's a huge change from what we've seen before. I think that this trend is very, very important. Interesting. Now, I would like to end up with a question, maybe uh, with two tips. Uh, do's and don'ts for uh, those who are looking into initiating a new company and maybe raising money. Maybe one lesson of uh, what they should focus on and, and maybe one lesson about things they should maybe skip. First of all, there, there is no one size fits all, right? So I don't think that there is a playbook. And I think that uh, the different VCs, they will give you a different answer. What's your background? What you've done before? Were you successful in your previous positions, et cetera, et cetera? But, and that's a very important but. At the end of the day, when, you, when we look back at what makes companies successful or not successful, choosing being an entrepreneur, which is very stressful, that has a lot of ups and downs, um, requires a lot of resiliency. So there are a lot of personality traits rather than skills that are important to be successful. And for people to choose that way of living, uh, because again, the outcome could be great, but it really, you know, the really successful people that get those billion dollar exits uh, are really a very, very few people. Choosing being entrepreneurs often comes from a deeper psychological motivation, right? And we are trying to understand working out of a garage or, or, or whatever, you know, bringing investors, et cetera, and other people that want to take a, what makes those people, where do they get the energy and motivation to do so? To have that uh, uh, extra spice of personality that is usually coming from a deeper element about family, about history, about friends, about hobbies, about what was important or not. Then these are not just in order to get to know you, what motivates you. The other element that I would say, the analysis of the market, pricing, go-to-market, uh, financial operational plan, is usually something that when you have first time with entrepreneurs, they have a great idea about technology and they have a great block diagram of the architecture of what they want to build, right? And then when you ask them, so how much money do you want to raise and how are you going to use it? Often the answer is, I don't have it here in the presentation, it's somewhere in the Excel. And, and I must say that for me, it's really a turnoff, right? At the end of the day, you are coming to ask for money. And if you're asking to ask for, coming to ask for money, I think it's prudent to say what you're going to do with this money. And to be able for me to show people that if we are going to give, to, to, to fund them, that they know how to think about what is the money is going to get used to, et cetera, uh, I think it's a very important element of, under, of being able to analyze the business and the risks and uh, what you want to do. And the same way that you have a technological roadmap for your product, you should have a business and financial roadmap for the company. And this is something which is overlooked. And since, and since we said we are in an era in which it is possible to build a billion dollar companies out of Israel, and it's happening more and more, right? We really want those entrepreneurs, but it takes business execution and not just technology and product execution in order to succeed. Ronan, it was fascinating. Um, though we set a, a meeting for 10 years time frame, I hope we'll meet uh, sooner uh, and we'll have the opportunity to, uh, to talk more about the various topics. And, and uh, it was great fun. And I want to thank you for, uh, for this uh, one hour. Um, it was great. Thank you. And Shana Tova. Thank you, Abishai and Amdok's team. Thank you very much, Shana Tova. And uh, let us all uh, stay healthy. Thanks. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.